The seven seals of Revelation are a dramatic series of events that God brings upon the earth. But many people believe that these events are in the future. Today we're going to see what scripture and history really say and why we are actually between the sixth and seventh seal of Revelation. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Dance of Life podcast. I'm Tudor Alexander, your host. Thanks so much for being with me. If you haven't subscribed yet, make sure you do so on my website, just so that we can stay in touch. You never know with platforms. I like to say that, especially in uh, this end time series, because we've talked about a lot of possibly controversial things when it comes to these platforms, so you never know. But the best way to keep in touch is on the website. That's danceoflife.com. But today we are continuing this end time series, and we are nearing the last leg of it towards the end. I mean, we are on episode uh, 26 now, I believe, and so... We have gone through quite a bit. If you have not, uh, if this is the first time you're tuning in and you're just checking in and see what's up, I would highly recommend that you go to the previous episodes. We've talked about the Millennial Kingdom. That was a huge topic. It's a huge topic in the end time. So we spent probably the first 10 episodes looking at the Millennial Kingdom, all aspects of it. So it's very comprehensive. And then probably the last, you know, I'd say 12 episodes after that were spent on identifying who the real Antichrist power on the earth is, looking at the abomination of desolation, at the prophecies in Daniel and John, uh, the various beasts, the mystery of Babylon, all these different things that we looked at in great detail. We looked at the image of the beast. So all those episodes I highly, highly recommend. Even if you've seen maybe a few of the last episodes or maybe you checked in very early on, but you kind of took a break, I highly recommend that you go see those. Those are incredibly important in the day that we live in today because, and again, this is the reason that motivated me to create this series, is that because not too many people are talking about these things. The the majority of people who are talking about end times events are deceiving you. And not that they like willingly want to deceive you, but they themselves are deceived. They're deceived by dispensationalism and by futurism in general. But if you remember, we documented this pretty clearly, futurism was created by who? It was created by the real Antichrist power on the earth, which is the papacy, the Catholic institution. It doesn't mean Catholic people are evil. It means that the institution is Antichrist. The papacy is what the Bible warned about, which is the thing that put itself between man and God. But anyway, we talked about that in great detail. But this organization is what created the idea of reading the Bible the way that most people read it today, which confuses you as to identifying who the real bad guy is in the story. It has you focus on Israel. It has you focus on, you know, a seven-year tribulation and all these different things that really have nothing to do with Scripture, a rapture. Look, I've said this before. I'm willing to be corrected midair. If there is a rapture, there isn't. But if there was, I'm open to being wrong about that. I would love to escape. But the truth is that there is no rapture. We have to endure. We're told to endure, especially the lukewarm church of Revelation. We've talked about these things. So ultimately, all these things that people are talking about, they are lies. And again, they're not necessarily trying to lie to you, but they are deceived. And it's a real shame. All the popular channels I've looked at who are talking about end times events, I would have to say probably 90% of them are talking about dispensationalist understandings. They're not talking about looking at history. They're not looking at how Bible prophecy is fulfilled throughout history. They're, they're talking and parroting and repeating these false 
eschatologies, because again, these things obscure who the real bad guy is, and that's by design. The Counter-Reformation is still going on because Protestants have not yet merged back with the Mother Church. But again, that's something we've talked about. It's something very real. And ultimately, you know, history is the key, along with Scripture, because they both work together. Prophecy is designed for every generation. God did not create prophecy just for a handful of Jews thousands of years ago and a handful of people at the end of time. God created prophecy First off, as a sign that he's sovereign over all of history, and that's true, but also so that no matter what generation you were born into, there was a word for you. There was a way for you to identify yourself in the prophetic scheme of things. And so if you believe that, which I do, then it's very clear. And then we looked at why history is the way and the key, because if you read things literally, as opposed to reading them through a historical lens, again, using like, for example, the 1260-day timeline in Revelation and Daniel, which talks about this, this Antichrist power. If you read that as literal days versus reading it as day-to-year principle, meaning those are 1260 years, you get vastly different results. And this is, of course, by design. Satan is always putting your eye on what is obvious. What's obvious? Oh, well, it's days. Let's just read it as days. Well, yeah, that's the, that's the low-hanging fruit. That's the obvious way to read it, but it's not the correct way to read it. What is obvious, or I should say what is immediate or easy, isn't always the truth. In fact, most of the time, it's, you know, it's not the truth. So you have to be wary. But today we are continuing past all that. So again, I, I'm, I'm trying not to review everything because there's just so much material, but it's kind of, you know, it's kind of tough not to review, especially with these series. People can click on them and open them. So again, if this is your first time, I highly recommend that you go back. This is a cumulative series. But the last episode, we, we kind of started making a, a shift, and that was in looking at the seven churches prophecy. So today we're looking at the seven seals, and then the next episode we'll look at the seven trumpets. And all of these things are related. They're very much related, and they're talking about the the church age, really, which is the millennium between Christ ascending and taking the throne officially and Christ returning uh, through the second coming and giving the kingdom back to the Father, ushering eternity after the judgment and basically ruling on earth you know, through his physical body. So that age of time is, is characterized by this, this different phases of the church. That was what we looked at last time. So we looked at the seven churches as a time prophecy. Of course, there are letters written to physical churches, but again, if if this is a first-time topic to you, go back to that episode and listen to it, because we prove beyond a shadow of a doubt the prophetic significance of the seven churches of Revelation. It's really profound, and if you have studied typology, then you know what I'm talking about. Typology, I heard a great and brilliant definition from Michael Heiser recently, Of course, he's passed away, but they're still sharing some of his clips here and there. And he had a great definition for it that he heard from somewhere else, which is that typology is nonverbal prophecy. So again, it's nonverbal prophecy. And if you understand what that means, it's really profound because typology is throughout the Bible. The Bible is constantly prophesying and prophetic. All the things that are physical that happen, they are portraying and prophesying 
non-verbally. They're doing it through through show and tell, basically. That's what God is doing of, of spiritual things that are yet to be. So, for example, we talked about in the Abomination of Desolation episode, we looked at the sanctuary in the wilderness and how there were so many points of contact between that and Jesus Christ and his ministry and the plan of salvation, right? All the high, the high priest's uh, function, the king function, Adam and Eve, David, Moses, all these people were types of Christ. They were people who lived and existed, but through their lives, God was doing like a show and tell to, to prophesy and to give flesh and, and character and reality so that you have context for who Jesus is. So when Jesus finally came, it's like putting that final puzzle piece into the middle of the puzzle. And it's like, oh, wow, now I can see how it all fits together. And that's that's the beauty of typology. That's the beauty of the Bible. And that's why I like reading the Bible from start to finish, because you really get, you get all of these pieces. And then finally, by the time you get to Christ's life, it just goes boom, and everything makes sense. And typology, though, requires you to have spiritual eyes. If you're looking for just literal things, you're going to miss this very important part of the Bible. But if you are looking for typology, and you understand that typology is a real legitimate thing that's happening in the Bible, then it's no surprise that the seven churches that John wrote to are also describing seven phases of the church. And we looked at that, how that is a prophetic thing, not just letters that were written to, you know, some past churches as some preterists believe, but rather a throughout time type of situation. So we also looked at the end times timeline. We'll look at that a little bit again today. So if you haven't accessed that, I highly uh, recommend checking it out. I link it always in the doc in the um, description for these episodes. That's just a free resource for you. It visually outlines all of these prophecies, the seven churches, the trumpets, the seals, John's beasts, uh, you know, the two witnesses. We've got Daniel's stuff in there. It's all lined up so you can see how all these things work together because when you see it visually, it's like, okay, this is really making much more sense now. Of course, all these things are a little confusing at first, especially if you're jumping into Bible prophecy. But when you see how they all work together, it's actually very simple and also very profound. It's talking about one antichrist system. And it's also talking about what the believers are doing during that time. So the seven churches was from the church's perspective. What's happening to the church as this time progresses between Christ ascending and Christ coming back? What's happening to the church? It's going through these different phases. And we're in the last church right now. We're in the, the lukewarm church of Laodicea. So that's, again, the point of these episodes, especially these ones like the uh, seven seals and the, the churches and the trumpets, the point is to show you beyond a shadow of a doubt that we are not just in the end times because we've really been in the last days, quote unquote, since the time of Christ, because that's when God appointed the world to be judged, right? So Satan was dethroned. That's it. You're done. You don't have any more power. The gospel is going out to the nations. There's going to be a set time uh, for a certain amount of people to be born and accept the gospel. But the world is being judged. There's a definite end to history now. And so from that point, which was at the cross, we've been in the last days. That's why there's no seven-year tribulation. We've been in the tribulation since Satan was thrown down and he knew his time was short. So he's been at the church and persecuting people, spreading deception ever since then. We, took, we talked about that in the, uh, 
the binding of Satan episode, very early on in the series. But we are now towards the very end, not just the end times, but the very, very end times. And I want to show you how that coincides with the seven seals, and next time, the seven trumpets. Because you're going to see we are between the sixth and seventh seals. The seventh seal and the seventh trumpet are all, it's the same thing, basically. It's basically when Christ returns. But the six seals before that and the six trumpets before that happen relatively around the same times. Of course, all of these things align, not exactly, but relatively enough to where you can see these phases going through time. It's very fascinating. Again, if you look at the uh, spreadsheet, the graphical spreadsheet I made, you'll see how all these things play. They, they really do. It's, it's very fascinating. But we are not going to cover the seven bowls. The seven bowl judgments, we'll talk about that in a second. But today we're looking at the seven seals. We're going to recapitulate a little bit about church history. So if you have not seen the previous episode, I highly recommend that you do that. Because again, people think that these things that they see, like the like the four horsemen, they think it's the four horsemen of the apocalypse, and they're tying it to the Euphrates River, and now the four horsemen are released. And it's just there's so much misinformation on this stuff, and really, it's not that's not what these things are talking about. It's talking about the church age, and as you can see, as you start layering these different prophecies together, you get a clearer picture of where you are in history. And you get a clearer picture of who the real Antichrist power is, which again, it points back to the papacy. But nonetheless, we're going to look at church history. And next episode, we'll look at the trumpets, which again, these all these things are related. And again, if you understand the, the, the pattern of history, you'll see that pretty clearly. But they're from different perspectives. The, the seven churches outline the first layer of the cake. It's like a prophecy cake. You got the foundation where it tells you what's happening to the church over this period of time, over the millennium. Then you have the seven seals, which are from the believer's perspective, as you'll soon see as we describe this. Next episode, we're going to talk about the trumpets, the seven trumpets, and those are judgments, and they're from the unbeliever's perspective, the wicked. And the trumpets themselves are, which is, again, these things don't align exact, exact, exact on by the year, because it's not about that. It's about what's happening throughout history until Christ returns. The trumpets themselves are events in time. They are things that happen in time. The seven churches are phases of time, right? So like, for example, the first church was from zero to 100 AD. That was the apostolic church. Then you had the persecuted church from 180 to 313. We looked at that with the Diocletian persecution. 10 days is 10 years, actually. Those are prophetic days, and we looked at all that. But anyway, these are phases of time. They're chunks of time. Same thing with the seals. These are describing different things that are happening throughout time, and then towards the end, you'll see that they are also describing events. So again, it's, it's not something that you need to be dogmatic about, but rather see that these things are fulfilled in history, and what does it mean if we are now after the sixth seal, the sixth church, and waiting for the seventh trumpet, that means we're in the 11th hour. And that's really what the whole point of this is. A lot of people can get really lost in this kind of stuff. And the point is, again, you don't have to know everything about the end times. In fact, I don't think you should. It's too much. People get lost in it. 
But you should know enough to triangulate your position in time, to triangulate who the real Antichrist power on the earth is so you aren't deceived when all of these other things start being fulfilled that the Antichrist power is doing to bring upon the earth. We talked about that with the third temple, possibly a false Christ, possibly a false golden age, a Christian nationalist system. We talked about all this stuff and nobody is really talking about these things, unfortunately. So share these episodes, share them with your friends, your family. I know some of them are a little longer, but ultimately, look, my point is to document these things thoroughly so that you know I'm not just talking out of my opinion, but rather I'm documenting everything from history, from current events. You can see uh, these things very plainly. But we will not cover the seven bowls. The seven bowls are a third type of judgment, and these are final judgments on the earth. And the reason we know that is because they happen after the the mark of the beast is um, deployed, basically. In Revelation 16, verse 1 through 2, it says, The seven bowls of God's wrath. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. So this is your time marker right here for when the bowls happen, is that the very first one is after the mark of the beast is implemented. So this is really, I mean, ultimately, look, once we get to the mark of the beast, remember, this is very important. What did Jesus say about his return? It will be like the days of Noah in the days of Lot depending which gospel you go to, both are mentioned. But what was what were those days like? Well, people were eating and drinking and giving in marriage. They were participating in society. Why were they participating? Or I should say in this case, in the future, why will people be jovial and happy and eating and drinking and giving in marriage? Because they've taken the mark of the beast. The people who have not taken it and refuse it will be persecuted. They're going to be killed. They're going to be ostracized. They won't be able to buy and sell. How can you be eating and drinking and giving a marriage if you can't buy and sell? You see how that works? So what that means is that when Christ returns, it will happen after the mark of the beast. So as soon as the mark of the beast comes into play, you know that we're like in the the final countdown, right? It's like that song, the final countdown. The final countdown. Yeah, that pretty much will sum up our lives at that point, if we're left alive. I hope so. I mean, in some sense, part of me is like, you know, it's easier to just die, honestly. Not that I don't want to be morbid or anything, but ultimately the earth is going to see some very crazy things. But if we're left alive, then we know that once the mark of the beast hits, then it's go time. You know, so it's a short period of time. So the point is that we're not really concerned with the seven bulls. It doesn't really matter because once these things start happening, This is like the very end. They happen right at the end, right before the seventh trumpet. So again, nothing to worry about, but a couple things about it are important, that they do mirror the plagues of Egypt and why this is important. Well, the Israelites were safe from the plagues of Egypt. This is another reason why we don't really need to worry ourselves with the bulls. The Israelites were kept safe from the plagues of Egypt. Even though they were in that area, God was very selective And so what that means is that the elect, God's elect, people who have been chosen to be saved by God and revealed the truth to, they will be kept safe. You will be provided for in some way or another. And again, that's testified to by the 144,000, the people who were sealed. We talked about this in the Mark of the Beast episode. 
The mark of the beast is a counterfeit election that the devil is trying to pull. He's going to pull off a counterfeit eternity. There's a golden age, probably with some sort of promise of eternal life. Who knows? I mean, we're, we're at the cusp of this. And, you know, to be part of this golden age, well, you have to pay worship in some way. We talked about that. The devil is counterfeiting what Christ will really do. So he's going to counterfeit. One of the counterfeits he's going to do is have an elect of his own. And the people who are not elect by God will take the mark of the beast and become a quote-unquote elect of Satan, meaning they're one of his people, and he's going to mark them, just like God marks his people with the seal of God on their foreheads. Does that mean that we're going to get a re, like a physical seal on our foreheads? No, these are, these are spiritual things that are describing people who are going to be saved by God, they will be saved. It's reassurance of salvation. That's what that is. So if you're alive by then, remember that there's not much time to go and that you will be provided for. God will see us through. So we're not worried about the bulls, but we are worried and concerned with the seals because they are historical. The bulls are at the very, very end. The trumpets and the seals, just like the seven churches, are historical. So we want to know where we are in history. We want to see, okay, do, do, do the seals confirm what the seven churches tell us? Because the seven churches historically tells us that we're in the last church, Right? It tells us we're in the last church, and the question is, okay, we're in the last church, but how long is that church going to last? Is that going to be like, you know, another thousand years of this church? Who knows? Or maybe it's going to be much, much less. That's a good question. And as we get more data, as you'll see with the seals and with the trumpets, you'll realize that there's not that much time. I'm not setting a time when Christ will return, but the point is, all of these, all of these things have been fulfilled, the six seals. And so what does that tell you? Well, Combine that with the other things we've talked about. Look at the world. Look at current events. Look at the one world religion forming. Look at, you know, all the signs of the times. Read the writing on the wall. They're close to making a worldwide monetary system. They're close to making a, you know, one world type of religion, a one world government. All that stuff is coming. It's not the big bad deep state. It's not the global commies. It's not the dark Klaus Schwab. Or Yovanul Harari, it's not that. It's going to be a Christian nationalist system, like it was for almost 1,500 years in history. Which again, if you don't know your history, then you don't realize where history repeats itself. History always repeats itself. What does the book of Ecclesiastes say? One of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. Ecclesiastes 1 verse 9, There is nothing new under the sun. Nothing new under the sun. What that means is that things repeat themselves constantly. Look around us today. People are, we're still in the Babylonian system. Nothing has changed. All that's changed is the packaging. We're still in the same spiritual reality of darkness. It's the kingdom of darkness. So if you don't understand history, then you don't understand where it's going. There was a power on the earth that was a Christian nationalist power where there was union between politics and religion. Why? Because that's the counterfeit of Christ. Christ is the king, politics, and he's also the high priest, religion. He's the authority on political matters, on, on governmental, you know, physical, secular, whatever matters. And he's also the authority on spiritual matters. He's the ultimate authority. Who has tried to copycat that authority? Satan. Look at Pontifex Maximus. Look at this title from old Babylon that's been passed through the Roman emperors and into the papacy. What does Pontifex Maximus represent? 
It represents king and priest, the authority over all things, the one who's basically God on earth. This is, we've talked about all this in the past, but again, if you understand history, you can see these things clearly. So study your history. This is my goal with these episodes, to wake you up and wake everybody up and wake myself up to these things, because it's been a great learning experience for me, too, to really dive into this stuff. But let's get right into it. So there's not too much to talk about here, but there are some very interesting things. This is in Revelation 6 and also 8. Uh, so Revelation 6, verses 1 through 2. This is the seven seals. So let's read that. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard uh, one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. So you have this image of a white horse. Now again, if you remember the last episode, I'm going to reference the last episode quite a bit, so if you haven't seen it, go check it out, because that sets the stage for these things. Seven churches, seven seals, seven trumpets, it's all related. This was the apostolic church. Zero approximately to about 100 AD. And what does it represent? Well, it represents that the gospel is going out into the nations and conquering, right? Conquering spiritually. didn't need a sword. And remember that Christ is king after he ascended. He's not king in the future. This is very important. The kingdom had already started. We looked at this in great detail within the first 10 episodes of this series. The kingdom was already here. It's been here. We're in the millennial kingdom. The millennial kingdom is not a golden utopia. The millennial kingdom is when Christ is ruling from heaven while his enemies are being put under his feet. Do you understand what that means? That means that we're living in that time while his enemies have to be put under his feet. Because when he returns, what does the Bible say? The Bible says it's the last enemy to be destroyed is death. How does that figure? It figures because when he returns, there's a resurrection. There's no more death after that. So how can you have a future millennial reign where there's death and sin after Christ returns? It doesn't make any sense. But this is what dispensationalism teaches. But the point is this, you know, if you relate these to the phases of the church, the first writer is a vision of purity. It's a pure doctrine. Uh, You know, the writer is white, Right, and we're going to look at how this relates to Christ and God very much. It's not <laughs> the futurists believe this is about the Antichrist. It's not the Antichrist because again, these are inversions. These are these are things that again, like with with the seventy weeks prophecy of the Messiah, where it talks about He will confirm the covenant with many. Dispensations believe that that's talking about the Antichrist, when in reality, it's talking about Jesus. Jesus is the one who confirmed the covenant. What covenant? The new covenant in his blood. And halfway through the week, which again, a week is prophetic years, so it's three and a half years, halfway through his last week, he got crucified. He got cut off. It's not talking about the Antichrist. It's talking about the Messiah. That whole prophecy is talking about the Messiah. But again, these are inversions by the devil designed to take your eyes off of things that point to Christ and to confuse you. So it's very important that we realize this. Now, images that relate to this white, the writer on the white herd, a lot of people debate what this is, but really it shouldn't be a debate if we just use Scripture to interpret Scripture. So let's look at a couple verses. In 2 Kings 13, verse 17, 
It says this, And he said, Open the window eastward, and he opened it. Then Elisha said, Shoot, and he, and he shot. And he said, The Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Syria, for you shall fight the Syrians in Aphek until you have made an end of them. So it represents God's arrow, God's shooting through the bow, victory. The, the imagery of a bow and arrow is about God's victory in this case. And it's a, it's, it's a prophecy. It's a prophetic verse talking about victory over Syrians and is using a bow and arrow. Compare this again to Psalm 64, verse 7. But God shoots his arrow at them and they are wounded suddenly. So again, you have imagery of a bow and arrow and victory. Habakkuk Verse uh, chapter three, verse eight, was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord, was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses and your chariot of salvation? You stripped this sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows, Selah, you split the earth with rivers. So again, the imagery of what we have God having a bow, a bow and arrow. This is associated to God and God's power, God's victory his military prowess. Now we look in Revelation, Revelation 2, verse 10. Do not fear that you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison and you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. This is the second church we talked about, with 10 days being the 10 years of Diocletian persecution. Be, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. So the crown, what does the crown represent throughout these verses in Revelation? The crown of life, and even in the Gospels and letters, it's talking about victory. It represents victory over death. Just as Christ was victorious over death, I overcame the world, right? He allows us to overcome the world through him and gives us the crown of life. The crown of life is a metaphor. It's a symbol that represents victory over death. And this is used throughout the scriptures. Now, if we look again in Revelation 19, verse 11, there's a rider on a white horse. What does this say? Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. This is like literally almost the same language as Revelation 6. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. So not only he judges and he makes war. War. What is war associated with? Bows and arrows. Victory. God. It's all the same. Who's the rider on the white horse? It's Jesus. The white horse plus a bow, plus the crown imagery, is all denoting the victory of the gospel going out into the nations. So again, when we read that verse in Revelation 6, look at this imagery. And I looked and behold, this is 6 verse 2, a white horse and his rider had a bow and a crown was given to him. And he came out conquering and to conquer. Who is conquering? That is the gospel is conquering. The white horse represents the purity of the gospel's message. You're going to see is how we go through these different seals that the horse, the rider on the horse changes just like the phases of the church change and degenerate over time. You're going to see how the, the this is another, again, proof that these things are related. The rider on the horse, how he degenerates, is, first off, it's obvious, again, you'll see this as we go through these seals, but you'll see first off that the riders um, successively degenerate. You start with this rider on a white horse, very pure imagery with a crown. Obviously, that's talking about victory over death. He has a bow. That's God's bow. Victory. It's, it's war imagery and victory imagery and spiritual imagery of victory over death. 
It's talking about the purity of the message of the gospel. What does the gospel testify to? It testifies to Christ. Who's Christ? He's the rider on the white horse, just like Revelation says in Revelation 19 and other places that we looked at where it's talking about God's bow and arrow. So it's the gospel matches what it's testifying about, right? So it's, it's showing the truth. It's the rider on the white horse. But as you will see, these riders start to degenerate more and more until you have a pale horse and it's death. It's literally like the opposite of what the first horse is. And that matches perfectly in time with the fourth church. Again, we'll, we'll look at all of this. It's so fascinating. But again, you know, it's, it's all about Christ. This is about the message of the gospel and what's happening throughout the time of the church age. The first couple hundred, I mean, the first hundred years, the message was pure. It was the apostolic church. It was the rider on the white horse, conquering. He has a crown. And we'll see as the previous or the successive riders, they're very different and they get successively worse. Now, I want to talk about a few things before we continue, and that's about seals in general and how they were used in history um, for legal transactions. And this is all very important. We're going to take a look at a few documents. Okay, so as usual, I'm going to put these links in the um, description of the episode. You can reference them for yourself. But this is a blog post on seven seals on documents, just in general. The idea of using seven seals on historical documents was actually a pretty popular idea. In Sumerian culture, in Roman times, throughout various different things. So I want to read a couple things here. It cites a couple verses from Jeremiah, and this is, I believe, Jeremiah 32. So this is verse 6. And Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Behold, Hanamiel the son of Shalom, thine uncle, shall come unto thee, saying, Buy thee my field that is in Ananoth, or Anathoth, for the right of redemption is thine to buy it. So Hanamiel, mine uncle's son, came to me in the court of the prison according to the word of the Lord, and said unto me, Buy my field, I pray thee, that that is in Ananoth, which is in the country of Benjamin. For the right of inheritance is thine, and the redemption is thine. Buy it for thyself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. So this was basically, God had told him to buy a field, and he had a messenger that confirmed that, so it proved that God was talking to him. Verse 9, And I thought the field of Hanamel, my uncle's son, that was in Ananoth, I bought it, and weighed him the money, even 17 shekels of silver. And I subscribed the evidence, and sealed it, and took witnesses, and weighed him the money and the balances. So I took the evidence of the purchase, both that which was sealed according to the law of custom, and custom, and that which was open. And I gave the evidence of the purchase unto Baruch, the son of Neriah, the son of Messiah in the sight of Hanamiel, mine uncle's son, and in the presence of the witnesses that subscribed the book of purchase before all the Jews that sat in the court of the prison. And I charged Baruch before him, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these evidences, this evidence of the purchase, both which is sealed and this evidence which is open, and put them in an earthen vessel, that they may continue many days. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Houses and fields and vineyards shall be possessed again in this land. And so the idea of, this is a, a transaction that's reported in the Bible, but it talks about sealing, sealing and opening. Now I wanted to read a couple more things. Under Roman law, scrolls were required to be sealed seven times. And it is known that the scrolls of the Roman emperors, such as Augustus and Vespasian, were sealed seven times. The point of similarity here is that the content 
would be a secret or a mystery until it was opened following the death of the emperor. It's a very important detail. Some of this also seems to apply to Revelation 5. Only the lion lamb was qualified to open the seven-sealed scroll, as only God, the son, had shed his blood and died. This seems to be emphasized in the statement describing the lion lamb as though he had been slain. Though Roman practice may have been of some influence in John's writing, I think the Jewish background fits it better. However, it is possible that John used both concepts here. So both Jews and Gentiles had this idea of, of seals, especially the seven seals. According to Roman law, each legal document was sealed by the owner himself, and six witnesses had to affix their personal seal also. In order to be a legitimate witness, a person had to have a close relationship with the testator and have firsthand knowledge of their will and purpose in the disposition of his estate. And it shows you kind of how these things look and how there were basically seven seals in an order and people would, would unfurl these scrolls. That way you knew it was not um, a forgery, like it was legitimate. Scroll represents a piece of papyrus or parchment that is usually bound or sewn together and rolled on a wood spindle. In order to read it, it was unrolled. Codices in the second century books replaced this. So this is an old school thing, obviously. That's why we have to understand what the context historically of this uh, part in Revelation is talking about. If it were an official legal document as this was, it was tied and sealed with wax. This denotes the power and eminence of his word. Here it is depicted as a Roman will containing God's covenant of the deed create of the deed of creation and our redemption and his promise and plan. And so, you know, you've got basically some evidence there that this was a historical process that was being used. I want to read another very important um, resource, and this is called A Scroll with Seven Seals. Again, you can reference this on your own. I'll put the link for it. But someone hearing this story in the first century would have thought, seven seals? Oh, it was a will. So seven seals is related directly to the idea of a will, which is very interesting. In the Roman Empire, wills as in a last will and testament, were officially registered and filed at the government office. This was too expensive and official for most people. So there was another method. A person invited their heir, the executor, and usually five witnesses to attend. He dictated his will to a secretary. Then the doc... Pay attention to this language. It's, it's actually really fascinating how it applies to John's revelation. When the document was finished, it was rolled up. Each person attested that it was correct and official by wrapping a string around it, tying it, putting a drop of wax on his knot, and then passing his seal into the wax. Thus, the will would have seven seals. When it was time to make the inheritance official, the heir and the executor had to be there and a majority of the witnesses. A papyrus from AD 325 actually describes the opening of a will, and there's a whole thing there. Revelation 5 is about the opening of a will. We also... We also are told that even rolled up, you could see the book was written on both sides, indicating that the entire document was full of text. It's a will with a lot of stuff in it. The setting in the, revel in the revelation is a heavenly throne scene. The will is the will and testament of the Father. John weeps because none of the seven were there to open the will. Then the land steps forward. He opens all seven. That was the part we were supposed to notice. He is the heir and the executor of the will. More than that, he is all five witnesses. The will of the Father was written before anyone else was around, since there had been no one else to witness it. So, therefore, he was the witnesses. That makes sense. 
We see in a visionary form what other scriptures also tell us. The Father's plan was made before creation, and the Son will inherit everything. So this is all just so fascinating and very important because it's talking about this idea, again, that this is a will. So this imagery, you have to first understand why this imagery of seals and seven seals, what does that mean? How does it relate to everything? And if you understand that, then it kind of gives context to all these different things. This is a will that's being opened up. That will is being opened up when? During the millennial kingdom, while Christ is ruling and his enemies are being put under his feet. As his enemies are being put under his feet, through the seals, through the trumpets, you know, through the various things that happen, the seals are being opened one by one. And by the time he opens the seventh seal, ready for this? Like this, this is the big kicker here. By the time he opens the seventh seal, what happens? Well, he returns to earth and delivers the kingdom back to God the Father. It's done. There's no more millennial kingdom. This is a huge understanding. But wills were used with seven seals. This is a very common practice. So it's very obvious that this is talking about a will. And when we look at Revelation 5, again, it's talking about like only John was weeping and there was nobody worthy found, but then the lamb steps forward. And that's because he is the inheritor because he he it was going to inherit all things. He's the executor, right? And he's the witnesses. So the point is that he is all these things. Messiah is the inheritor of everything. And, and a will is transferred when? A will is transferred upon death. But because he died and came back to life, he inherited. He, he gets the will, the will is transferred, and he gets the will, if that makes sense. Which is just fascinating. It's all just so fascinating the way it works. But this is talking about the fulfillment of all things. It's talking about Christ inheriting the earth. And of course, we, by being in a relationship with Jesus, inherit those things as well. It goes back to Genesis, basically, but it's a redeemed paradise. Now, when all seven seals are broken, he's going to return. He's going to take possession of the earth, finally. And he's going to give that possession, give that kingdom to God the Father, the triune Trinity is going to rule through Christ's body on the earth. Yes, Christ will be here physically. The dwelling place of God will be with man. That's what Revelation says. But it's not talking about Christ ruling on a physical throne of David in Jerusalem for a thousand literal years while people are still dying and sinning because he has to put his enemies under his feet. That is a dispensationalist teaching. And that, if anything, is talking about a possible counterfeit golden age with a counterfeit Christ that if you don't worship, you will be one of the enemies put under his feet. Do you see the consequence of believing the wrong things in this case? They're, they're very high. So all of these things are historical. Again, they, they match historical things. And the, the seven seals, as you see, will match the, the phases of the church. So we talked about the first seal, the, the, rider on the, white, the rider on the white horse, how there is ample imagery in the Bible, both in Revelation and the Old Testament, that describes God and his power and his conquering, you know, just his conquering power, his conquering authority. How does it describe? With a bow, with an arrow, with a crown, with a white horse. So it makes no sense, given that scripture is pretty rich on this, to say, oh yeah, the rider on the white horse is the Antichrist. Well, how does that relate to anything? 
It doesn't. This is a fabrication. It doesn't relate to anything. It relates to Jesus because it's the message of the gospel that relates to the first phase of the church. Now, when we look at the second seal, what does that compare itself to? Again, it compares it to what's next in line in the previous prophecy, the seven churches prophecy. What was next in line was the persecuted church from about 180 to 31380. Now, again, some of these times, don't be dogmatic about it, but there are historical reasons that back up these dates. 313 AD was when the persecution of the uh, Christians was officially put to an end. So the persecuted church that that second letter applied to, that phase ended. The church is still around, but the, the phase of persecution, like hardcore Roman crucifixion, feeding to lions, that kind of stuff ended. And then you had the third phase, which we'll talk about after this. But the second seal goes as follows. This is from verses three to four. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come. And out came another horse. This time it's bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. Now, again, this is, you have to be so careful with these things because especially today with, with AI and imagery and, you know, Photoshop, people make these really graphical, you know, video game type representations of the the four horsemen, basically, of the seals. And they make these riders that look like super evil. And, you know, they got these giant, whor- you know, uh, swords and they look like demons. I mean, ultimately, these things are just fabrications. All it says is this time the horse and the horseman is bright red and he has a great sword and he was permitted to allow peace to be taken away from one another. And now what do we know about the color red? Well, red equals sacrifice. It it equals blood. Throughout the Bible, red has always signified blood and blood is about what? Sacrifice. Now we also know that the sword is also resembled many times relating to God. And we'll look at these verses. This is Hebrews 4 verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of the soul of the spirit and the joints of the marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Word of God is compared to a sword. And you'll see how all this fits together. Revelation 1 verse 16, in, the, in his right hand he held seven stars. This is talking about Jesus now. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. So again, sword is associated to Jesus. Revelation 2 verse 12, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Again, who is the sword associated with? It's associated to Christ several times. Now compare this, what we just talked about with these verses, to Matthew 10, verses 34 through 36, where he says, Not peace, but a sword. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. This is Jesus talking now. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Does this sound like what Revelation is talking about in the second seal where it says uh, its writer was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another? Do you see how this now relates to the second church? What's happening? Let's put all this together. What happened during the second phase of the church? That was the persecution phase. Of course, there's always been persecution, but that was like hardcore 
just really, really bloody persecution, signified by the color red, which is sacrifice. Now, the sword is constantly, I should say several times, imaged with Jesus. Jesus said in Matthew 10 that he came to bring the sword. In Revelation, he says he's the one carrying the sword. In the other chapter in Revelation, Revelation 1, he's the one with the sharp two-edged sword coming from his mouth. The word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. So the sword is associated with Christ. Put it all together now. What happened? Why Why were people persecuted? Because of the word of God. Those who believed in Christ did not want to bow down to idols. That caused a lot of peace to be robbed from them. The word of God was conquering at first in the first hundred years, that first apostolic church, the white horse, the rider on the white horse with the crown and the bow. And then what happened? Then the word of God brought sharp division between people because the Roman Empire forced people. Again, these are physical to the spiritual. This is a template for what's going to happen with the mark of the beast. These things have happened throughout history where the Antichrist power has said, no, you're going to worship me or you're going to worship how we want you to tell you to you worship or unless we'll kill you. This has happened many times. These are prophetic signs that are warning you about the ultimate thing that's going to happen at the very end. But nevertheless, it's again, history repeats itself, right? History repeats itself. So what happened? Well, some people were false converts said, okay, go ahead. I'm, I'll worship the way you want me to. They took the mark in that sense, not the actual mark, but they, they took the figurative mark by obeying the Antichrist power. And then some of their family members said, no, that's, that's wrong. I'm not going to do that. I, I cling to Jesus. What happened? Mother against her daughter, friend against friend, brother against brother, father against son. Do you see how Christ's words were fulfilled in not only, I mean, I would say throughout time, I mean, today, even just being a Christian, you're going to have conflict with your friends who aren't believers, especially if you're really passionate about the gospel, but especially in that time when there was persecution, do you see how Christ's words were fulfilled, that he brought the sword, that people would slay each other, that, that, that people would, would persecute, and of course, what's the color of the uh, the writer? He's red. So the next phase of the church is where Christ word brings the sword and it leads to persecution because people are clinging to their beliefs. They don't want to bend over to the Antichrist power. And of course, that gets them killed. That's the second phase of the church. The second seal, the second horse is talking about this second phase of the church. We saw so far that there's a match. The first horseman, then it changed into red and blood and sword and sacrifice. Now, the third seal, again, watch how these horsemen change, is a black horse. And we're going to read that in Revelation 6, verses 5 through 6. When he opened this, the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. That's an interesting image. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures, saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius. Pay attention to the type of food that we're talking about. A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. And do not harm the oil and the wine. These are not just like random. Nothing is random. Nothing is just like, oh, I'm just going to write whatever I feel like it. These are very specific foods 
very specific foods. And so you have to ask yourself then, what do these things represent? Now, again, using our Seven Churches episode as a guide, what was the third phase of the church? After all the persecution ended in 313, you had the compromised church from about 1313, when the persecution ended, to about 538, when the papacy was made official as the you know, official authority, basically God on earth. And that's, of course, when the abomination of desolation was fully set up. But we talked about that in detail. No need to review that today. But the point is that you had this period of time of a compromised church where what happened? Constantine mixed, you know, pagan practices with, with Christian practices. Of course, Satan saw that persecution wasn't working. It's not working to kill these people because they're clinging to their faith. They're getting even more faithful. So let me do something else. Let me go from dark to light, which again, pay attention. This is so important. Again, these are historical things that foreshadow what's going to happen in the future. The dark doesn't work, so you got to go with the light. We're moving from dark to light in this current generation. We're going back to Christian nationalist values, back to good old religion and good conservative values, which again, seems good on the surface, but who is the moral authority that's going to dictate these things? It's going to be the Pope. It's going to be the same authority that dictated it a long time ago. But nevertheless, this is what Satan did. Satan created his own counterfeit religion because he realized, well, killing people is not going to work. That's just going to prove that Christ is true because people are dying for their faith. So let me just, you know, muddy the waters a little bit. Let me make my own religion. Let me counterfeit these things. Let me make it cushy and make it about worldly things so that you get lost in religion and you end up worshiping me indirectly rather than worshiping Christ and having a relationship with him. You have a relationship with the institution, the church, the worldly counterfeit. And so that's what happened. You had a compromised church. The word of God became compromised. What does that mean? That means there was a spiritual famine for the Word of God. The Word of God is always compared to things like wheat and barley for bread. Who is the bread of life? Jesus. Jesus is the Word. We feed on the Word. You know, these images of bread, the Word, Christ, all these things go together. Bethlehem. 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 This is the house of bread. That's where Jesus was born. Interesting, isn't it? And ultimately, again, we know that Jesus is the bread of life. So you had all of these things throughout the Bible that denoted bread, and they were fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. All those times when you read about manna, and man does not live by, by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, who's the word? Jesus. Who's the bread of life? Jesus. What was in the ark? Manna. It's, again, pointing to Jesus. All these things were pointing to Christ. So if there's a shortage of wheat and barley, if wheat and barley represent um, bread, because that's what you bake bread with, and th- and there's a scale and they're weighing it and they're, oh, okay, let me, you know, I, have to, I might have to compromise a little bit. What's happening here? The word of God is being compromised. Do you see how this works? It's being weighed out and and calculated and, oh, well, you know, we got to incorporate paganism into into this. Otherwise, you know, it's too much revolt. You know, people are going to just revolt and it's, let's just make everybody happy. 
Do you see how that works? Trying to even the scales rather than going with what the gospel tells you to go with. This is what happened in the third phase of the church. Now, wine and oil are also symbolic. Wine is talked about quite a bit. Obviously, that's related to Christ's blood, drink my blood, you know, uh, eat my body, drink my blood. Not the Eucharist, but spiritually, partake of Lord Jesus through faith. Partake of his blood through being born again. When you are born again, what happens? You die. You die a spiritual death. You're buried with him so you can be resurrected with him. And so when you partake of his cup, when you partake of his blood, you are not, it's not going to church and drinking wine and saying, oh, this is the actual blood of Jesus. I'm drinking it. I'm saved now. That's not at all what that means. That's talking about a spiritual reality of communion with Christ through repentance and faith. But there's a couple of great verses on wine as well. So Mark uh, chapter 2, verse 22 Jesus says, and no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. This is such an important thing, you know, and he's, he's talking about a lot of different things and they're asking about fasting. But basically what this passage is referring to, the new wine. Who's the new wine? Who's the new covenant? It's the gospel. It's Christ. You don't try to fit him into these legalistic paradigms. They, even after Jesus ascended and left the earth, Paul was fighting with the Jews constantly because they were trying to say, okay, well, we believe in Jesus, but you still have to be circumcised. You still have to you know, fast or you, you can't eat pork. You, you can't do this. You can't do that. And they're trying to be legalistic about it. And this is was, this was throughout the New Testament. So this is just one of those places where Christ is reminding people you can't put new wine in old wineskins. And that's a real thing. It's a physical thing. Again, physical. Is he talking about real wine? No. He's using real wine and wineskins as a metaphor, as a spiritual metaphor for the reality of you can't try to fit this new thing that I'm doing into your old ways. I'm coming to fulfill everything and usher in something way cooler. That's what he's saying here. So wine is, but in this case, what is wine relating to? It's relating to, again, the word, the gospel, the new way of being, the understanding. What does wine relate to when he had Passover? Drink my, drink my blood, eat my uh, flesh. Is that actually talking about real blood and, and real flesh? No. It's talking about partake of the gospel, partake of the truth, partake of the word of God. In Isaiah 55, verse 1 the compassion of the Lord. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Again, we have this vision of wine and how it's related to basically partake. What I mean, is God asking, again, it's like you got to read spiritually. Is God asking people, come and buy wine? Yeah, there's going to be just free wine for everybody. Is that what really what's going on here? You have to think outside these literal ways of reading the Bible. He's talking about partaking with God, having communion with God. The Lord's table is mentioned throughout the New Testament. What's the Lord's table? When you partake of the Lord's table, we looked at that. It's being part of the kingdom. The Lord's table equals the temple, equals the body of Christ, equals the church, equals the kingdom. All these phrases, the the temple, I think, I don't know if I mentioned that or not, but anyway, all the things I just mentioned, 
they are all used synonymously throughout the New Testament. They're all the same thing. They're not different from one another. If you're in the kingdom, you're at the Lord's table. You're also in the church. You're also in the temple. You're also in the body of Christ. See, all these things come together. It is a communion with each other and with Christ. Through him, obviously. That's what we have communion with each other. But they're all related to wine. When you're at the Lord's table, you're drinking wine. But wine is representative of what? Christ's blood. You're partaking of his sacrifice. You're remembering that he died for you. And in so doing, you're, you're maintaining a position of repentance and faith. That you are nothing without Christ. That he gives you life. And ultimately, that's how you partake of his blood. Right? It's not a physical thing. Now, oil... Oil is a symbol for the Holy Spirit throughout Scripture. I'm not going to cite Scriptures here because this is there's so many that you know you just don't need to. This is a very commonly understood idea that oil always represented the Holy Spirit. So now let's put it all together. History proves that there is a time of compromise in the church after the persecuting phase, which was again around between 1313 to about 538 when the papacy fully took control. That ushered in a new church age. We'll talk about that in a second. Now, what does this prove? Some things were compromised, right? What was compromised? The barley and the wheat with the scales. Everybody's weighing the barley and the wheat out. Oh, well, you know, should we really believe this or not? Maybe we can make indulgences for these things. And these things are being weighed out and calculated, right? So there's compromise going on. Now, we also know that there's Sunday laws, Mary worship, holidays, you know, a liturgical calendar. There was a church-state union set up. Certain pagan practices were adopted, traditions. You know, all these different things were, were put into the church. And so there was a lot of compromise because none of these things are based in the Word of God. None of them. They try to base it on the Word of God, but they failed miserably because they aren't. Still... Still, what does it say? It says, do not harm the oil and the wine. What does that mean? Well, the oil represents the Holy Spirit. And the wine also represents, we talked about that, Christ's sacrifice, genuine faith. Where where are we going with this? Well, if you have some things that are compromised, what's, what's the next thing it's talking about? The oil and wine. Well, some things were not compromised. They were still genuine believers. In fact, there's records of people like Sabbath keepers who were persecuted. They weren't like crucified like they were, you know, in the second phase of the church, but they were, you know, they were economically persecuted. Again, these are waves of history and it's coming again. It's coming again, people. We talked about that with the mark of the beast. But the point is that they were still genuine believers. Do not hurt the oil and the wine people who broke bread with one another, people who were guided by the Holy Spirit and not by tradition, people who kept the Sabbath and and didn't want to worship on the day of the sun. All these different things were denoting that while there was compromise, there were still genuine believers who were partaking of the Lord's table. So all this matches perfectly with the third phase of the church. Now, the fourth seal is the final horse, and it's the pale horse. And it's it's just, again, the most degenerate version of the horse. And if the horse represents the gospel, the truth, right? The message. And you see that message changing over time. First, you see this white horse and he's conquering. The gospel's going out to the nations. Then it's a red horse with a sword. 
because the word of God brought great persecution upon people and, and made a dividing line. Do you believe or are you going to go with the beast? Which one do you choose? And if you believe, well, then get ready to die. That's basically what happened. Then you had the black horse with the scale, and he was compromised. Okay, well, you know, persecution is over, but we're going to compromise. Let's see. Well, let's weigh things out a little bit and see what we can say yes to and what we can say no to. And then finally, you have this pale horse, which really represents death. And it's very interesting how that coincides with history. Revelation 6, verses 7 through 8. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death. Gives it even a name. And Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. Very fascinating set of verses here. We'll take a look at all these. But first and foremost, this coincides with the Dark Ages Church, which is what happened between 538 and approximately the Reformation, where the Reformation exposed some of this evil, this systematic institutionalized evil that the Bible predicted that would rule for 1260 years on the earth, and it did, 538 to 1798. We looked at that. But this fourth seal, again, if it represent, if these previous horses all represented the message, the gospel, and it started with, okay, this is Christ, very much so identified as Christ, the crown, the white horse, the bow, but then it's sort of degenerating and changing. And now, finally, this fourth horse coincides with the fourth faith as a church, which was basically the Dark Ages church, when the, the papacy took over and set itself up between man and God. The abomination of desolation. Now, desolation is emptiness or death in that sense. If you remember when we talked about the sanctuary, how it represents the plan of salvation, then we understand that the abomination that is set up, that makes the sanctuary desolate, meaning nobody goes to the sanctuary, nobody goes through the door, Nobody gets saved by the gospel. They, they go through the institution instead. It's, it's saying, hey, look at me. Don't look over there. Come through me. I'm, I'm the way to do it. Not Jesus. That's what the abomination is doing. What is the abomination? It's the institutionalization of Christianity. It is the physical counterfeit of a spiritual kingdom that Christ came to leave on the earth. And this is what happened. Satan created his own counterfeit kingdom through the Catholic system the universal church, the mother of abominations. And of course, he ruled that system through the papacy, through the little horn power, which was represented by a man. We looked at all of these things. There's so much abundant proof that this is the case, but this coincides perfectly with these seven seals, the fourth seal in this case. The Dark Ages church was, in this case, from, a, from about 538 AD when the Pope was officially made you know, the, the authority over the church to about 1517 when um, the Reformation kind of exposed the system. But of course, death relates to what? Spiritual death. So you have these phases of the gospel. And what happened during the Dark Ages church? Well, the gospel was taken away. The abomination of desolation was set up. Desolation is death. Catholic church controlled about a fourth of the earth, which is true. What does it say in Revelation 6, 8? And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence and wild beasts. So he's killing with a lot of different things. 
This institutionalization, this power that ruled a quarter of the earth, approximately, so that's fulfilled by the papacy, it basically killed with the sword. We know that through the Crusades, through the Inquisition, a lot of bloodshed. I don't know how many, what the actual count is, because probably they've covered it up, but I've heard some very high estimates. But in either case, a lot of people were killed by the sword because of the Crusades and because of the Inquisitions and persecution in general. Killed with famine. Now, there's a lot of relation here between the Bible being the word of God and the bread that feeds people, right? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's in Deuteronomy. So if there's a famine, what does that mean in a prophetic context? It means that the Bible, which is the thing that feeds you, the truth, the word of God, is taken away. Is that confirmed by history? Yes. The Catholic Church banned the Bible. In fact, it even made it to where if you were a peasant, you wouldn't even know what the Bible said because it was in Latin. You had to go to a priest and say, well, what does it say? And they say, oh, well, you know. They would tell you what it is. The authority would tell you what the what the Word of God tells you. Not God through Scripture and through reading and through in, embracing it and engaging it on your own. Do you see how it set itself up between man and God? So that's fulfilled. There was a famine that killed people through that famine because the Bible says that my people die for lack of knowledge. It also killed with pestilence. Now, this could relate to a couple things. It could relate to the Black Plague, which was indeed something that happened during the Dark Ages, and a lot of people died. And, you know, there's some various theories about who originated that plague, but regardless, it also could relate to false doctrines, poisoning the truth, right? So if we're, ta- if we're consistent with the interpretation about the Word of God, again, all this relates to the Word of God. What's happening to the Word of God? It's just more and more layers to add to the cake so you can understand what's happening throughout history with this Antichrist power of the earth, both from the believer's perspective and from the from the power's perspective. But pestilence, killing people, and basically, again, it the word of God was poisoned with all these false doctrines and you know Latin Vulgate translation, all these different things. And of course, wild beasts is the last thing. And beasts throughout Scripture have always represented political powers. So if beasts are killing people, we know again this relates to Daniel and how he said that the Pope, the, I mean, he didn't say the Pope, but he said the little horn power, which again we've identified as the papacy, the little horn power would be mighty and it would not be successful militarily because of its own military. He would basically be, use, be using other people's military. This is a very important point because the Pope never really had his own military. And yet he ruled with an iron fist as a church-state union uh, throughout Europe and, you know, the Roman Empire. But where do these beasts come in? Well, beasts are political systems throughout all of Revelation and Daniel. Every beast is always a political system. It's a kingdom. It's not an individual. We looked at that in great detail. Several reasons why that's the case. But if now, if this rider is this situation now has gotten to the point of death, like everything is just dying, one of the things that's fulfilled is that the Pope had different countries that he ruled over. He would just use different countries and say, okay, Germany, you go here, you attack them, or you, you do that, and you do, and everybody listened to the Pope. He was a supreme authority. So the beasts, right, the various kingdoms that were under his power, 
were killing people. And all of these things are fulfilled in history. So very interesting. Very, very interesting. And again, I want you to notice how the first four seals of these various horsemen, they align perfectly with the stages of the church. I'm not pulling metaphors and taking liberties here. I'm not pulling things out of my hat. These things are very obvious parallels to what we saw in the seven churches and history in general, in the history of the church and how it de-evolved through various time periods. And of course, there's always faithful believers, but the message, the the plan, you know, Satan was thrown down and Jesus went to rule from heaven. He's giving us a picture, actually lots of pictures, of what's going to happen during this time while Christ is not here. This is how generous our Lord is. He's giving us imagery upon imagery to understand what is the plan of the devil? What is the devil going to do? And what's going to happen in history? So you understand all these changes that are happening. So many things are happening and changing. So you understand what's going on. And again, if you see these things clearly, you see the you see who the true Antichrist power on the earth is. But if you're thinking these are four horsemen of the apocalypse and they're going to be released during the seven-year tribulation and all this kind of stuff, you're missing the whole point of like the first eight chapters of Revelation with the seven churches, the seven seals, the seven trumpets. I think the, there's more chapters after that with the trumpets. But the point is, you're missing the point. The, the rider in the beginning, which was the white horse, what he represent? Life, Christ, the message. It's pure. It's unadulterated. And then over time, it became the opposite of that. The fourth horseman represents death. He's named death as if you kind of, so you don't take any guesses. Like this is death now. Well, what happened with the church? It went from being an apostolic church to five centuries later, it became the counterfeit kingdom of Satan on earth, which is death. So again, you need spiritual eyes to see these things. And they're very obvious and they're very beautiful too. It's really profound how God has worked all of these things and provided such clear prophecy through physical things that happen. Nevertheless, at this point now, we kind of start making a shift. In the fifth seal, we read the following. This is Revelation 6, 9 through 11. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So this is relating again now, this is the fifth thing that's happening, the fifth seal, and that relates, if we relate it to the first prophecy of the churches, the fifth church, which is the Reformation church, or the Reformed church. And in this case, it's from about 1517 to about 1755. And you'll see why I picked 1755. But it's about the time of the Reformation, where you had, you know, 16th century, 17th century, and then a little bit into uh, the 1700s. But these, if you look on the end times timeline, this is where the, the times start being slightly different. Again, these are, 
It's not about being exactly, okay, if it's this year to this year. It's not about that. It's about phases of history. So don't be dogmatic about it. But the reformers fought against the church and they were martyred. They were martyred. They were persecuted and martyred. And the souls under the altar represents the earlier martyrs. It's not talking about, you know, this vision of heaven where there's an immortal soul and John saw, you know, all these saints that were waiting basically in some sort of, it's not purgatory, but, you know, some sort of place that they were waiting. That's not what this is talking about. It's talking about the people who are going to be martyred, or actually in this case, from John's perspective, it was future, but from our perspective, it's past because it's Reformation. But it's talking about the people who are going to be martyred. Now, again, martyrdom during the Dark Ages church, you can see a parallel. What I'm trying to say is this. You can see a parallel between the Reformation and the second church where there was you know, this persecuted church. We talked about this in the seven churches with the Church of Philadelphia, where you have uh, you know, Philadelphia and, and I believe Sardis is the one before that. But Sardis and Philadelphia, they're the fifth and sixth churches, where you had you know, like things like the Great Awakening and um, you know, revival, all these different things that were happening with the Reformation churches. And that basically brought a lot of persecution. At first, at least, a lot of the reformers were martyred brutally. Very similar to what happened in the persecuted church. And so this is echoing that now there's a new phase of martyrdom and what's happening. Well, these people are given white robes. They're, they're deemed righteous. And there has to be a certain amount of them that goes through it because, again, the Reformation was designed to expose the truth. And we have gotten away from that. A lot of Great things came out of the Reformation. But one thing that came out of the Reformation was the Counter-Reformation. I've talked about this ad nauseum. The Counter-Reformation was a response by the Catholic Church, the papacy, to what happened. Because they panicked. Uh Uh-oh, people are starting to realize, you know, who the beast system is. We can't have that. Quick, let's find a different way to interpret Bible events. So they started futurism and then later dispensationalism. They started the Jesuits. The Jesuits are involved in practically everything that you can look at in history in the last 500 years. So again, these aren't conspiracy theories. They're very much well documented. And so this is not talking about heaven. It's not talking about the immortal soul. It's a vision. Visions are symbolic. It's talking about the fifth phase of the church where basically, again, you have all these phases of the word, you know, initially conquering and then causing persecution getting compromised, becoming the abomination of desolation. Now there's going to be more martyrs for the faith. Well, why? Because people are getting back to the truth. Now in the sixth seal, you have various signs. And this is where the shift from symbolic to actual physical signs happens, which is very interesting. And so this this applies to the last two churches, which is... Um, Philadelphia and Laodicea, which is what we're in. We're in the last church. We're in Laodicea, as per the last episode, as you can see very clearly. But this Revelation seal, from, this is about from uh, verse 12 to 17. Let's read it. Let's take a look at it. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth and as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. 
Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the, la- from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Now this is a very interesting seal, because part of this is in the past, and we'll look at how this was already fulfilled in the past, but part of it is yet future, and the part that's future is talking about, you know, it, the last part says, what does it say? The great day of his wrath has come. Well, wait a minute, are we... Have we seen that part yet? No, of course not. This is still future. The great day hasn't come yet. It's still the future. So this is now an interesting period of time because it overlaps from the the fifth seal, which is around the Reformation time. It goes all the way till practically the very end because after this is the seventh seal and that's the actual arrival of Jesus. This is talking about things that happened We'll see how these were already fulfilled so you can understand, okay, wow, we're like, you know, right at the right at the very end here of that sixth seal with these final things happening, supernatural things, you know, obviously some giant quaking situation where everybody panics, and then you have the seventh seal where Christ actually returns. So this is very much the 11th hour, but these things were already fulfilled, at least the first couple ones where he says the... Uh, the moon became like blood. The sun became black as sackcloth. There was a great earthquake. Stars of the sky fell to the earth. All these things actually have a very fascinating historical fulfillment. So let's take a look at that historical fulfillment and see what it is. This is a commentary on Revelation um, six, I believe. The event that mark the event that marks the opening of this seal took place in 1755. This is why I told you I said it to 1755. On November 1st, Lisbon, Portugal was the center of a tremendous earthquake. Its effects were felt over an area of 4 million square miles. On May 19th, 1780, beginning around 9 a.m., heavy black clouds blotted out the sun, drawing the the dark of night over New England. We'll look at this in another article. That night, when the darkness finally lessened and the moon appeared, it had the appearance of blood. November 13th, 1833, brought the most extensive display of falling stars which have ever been recorded. So all these things happened in succession within, you know, a couple decades, which is very, very interesting. Again, these are after the fifth seal, which we saw match the Reformation, and the other four seals match the uh, phases of the church. But this is the 1755 Lisbon earthquake. You can look this on Wikipedia. The 1755 Lisbon earthquake known as the Great Lisbon Earthquake, impacted Portugal, the Iberian Peninsula, and Northwest Africa on 1st November Feast of All Saints at around 9.40 local time. In combination with subsequent fires and tsunami, the earthquake almost completely destroyed Lisbon and the adjoining areas. Seismologists estimate the Lisbon Earthquake had a magnitude of 7.7 or greater on the the moment magnitude scale, with its epicenter in the Atlantic Ocean about 200 kilometers west of Cape St. Vincent. Chronologically, it was the third known large-scale earthquake and hit the city following those of 1321 and 1531. Estimates place the death toll in Lisbon around 12,000, making it one of the largest earthquakes in history. So this was a huge, huge, huge earthquake. And, um, you know, ultimately, 
it, it fulfills these things because there are other things nearby that time that also fulfilled it as these ones. This is another commentary now. New England experienced the famous dark day on May 19th, 1780. So a couple years, like, you know, 25 years after the earthquake, followed by signs in the moon as well. November 12th, 1833, a great meteor shower occurred. Nearly 200,000 meteors fell per hour. These signs were seen across the United States. History records these memorable moments as follows. Quote, the dark day of New England, so familiar to old and young, came May 19, 1780. Near 11 o'clock, it began to grow dark, as if night were coming. This is 11 in the morning. Men ceased their work. The lowing cattle came to the barns. The bleeding sheep huddled by the fences. The wild birds screamed and flew into their nests. The fowls went to their roosts. At night, it was so inky dark that a person could not see his hand when held up, nor even a white sheet of paper. This is a supernatural event that's documented in history. Here's another quote. During the whole time, a sickly melancholy gloom overcast the face of nature. Nor was the darkness of the night less uncommon and terrifying than that of the day. Notwithstanding, there was almost a full moon. No object was discernible. But the help of some artificial light, which when seen from the neighboring houses and other places at a distance, appeared through a kind of Egyptian darkness. That's an interesting commentary, isn't it? This is... (laughs) Think about the plagues in Egypt, which is, again, so fascinating that this would be written down, which seemed impervious to the rays. Herschel, the great astronomer, frankly admits the dark day of May 19, 1780 is one of those wonderful phenomena of nature which will always be read with interest, but which philosophy is at a loss to explain. Yeah, of nature, I think it's of God, really. This is the point to take home because, I mean, look, the order of these events is exactly the order in the sixth seal. What is the sixth seal? Is it before there was a great, behold, there was a great earthquake, number one. Then the sun became black as sackcloth. Okay, then, so you had the great day of darkness that was 25 years later. Then the full moon became like blood. We had saw that afterwards as well. And then you had the meteor shower in 1780, I believe, which was the greatest meteor shower ever recorded. And all the, star, all the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit. So you had all the same order of events that happened in history are the same order that Revelation 6 says that they would happen within a matter of, I don't know, something like 50 years. Also, the sixth seal happened after the fifth seal, which again, we saw all five seals relate to the historical ages of the church. So it's obvious that all these things go together, that they're historically fulfilled. Now, again, some of the things that were mentioned in this sixth seal, the sixth seal is actually a very long period of time. They're not events that just happen. It's it's a period of time. And even though it has events in it, like the earthquakes and all these things we talked about, we haven't gotten to the point where the kings of the earth are running and basically hiding and wanting to be killed because they don't want to deal with the second return of Christ or the return of Christ because there's no second return, there's the return. We haven't gotten to that point yet. The, the day of his wrath has not come. So we are still within the sixth seal, but we're in between the sixth seal and the seventh seal. Do you see what I mean? So now what about the seventh seal? Well, the seventh seal is when Christ returns. Revelation 7, verse 1. After I saw, after this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against any tree. So this is talking about 
the people being sealed, the 144,000. You can read about it in Revelation 7, and it kind of gives this chronology. But again, numbers are not to be taken literally in Revelation, at least not in the sense where like 144,000, it's not 144,000 people that are saved. There's going to be a lot more people in that, but it's what it's saying is, okay, 1,000 is a number of completion, so is 12. And these things are representative of, yes, the people who are going to be saved will be saved. Don't worry about it. That's, again, reassurance of salvation. God is doing that all the time. He always gives you the the big picture. He shows you the big, bad boogeyman, and he reminds you, hey, don't worry. I got this. People are going to be, everybody's going to be saved who I've chosen to save. So we have to remember that context. Now, we also have to read in Revelation 8, the seventh seal and the golden censer. This is verses 1 through 5. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. It's a very interesting statement. Verse 2, Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Again, smoke and uh, smoke represents prayer of the saints. We talked about this in the past too. So all these things are metaphors. They're spiritual realities. Verse 5, Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth, and there were peals of thunder. Now, this is the language I want you to pay attention to. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Could this earth... Now, pay attention to this because we're going to look at the other things too. This earthquake, this last earthquake, could that be the final earthquake where, which is described in the in the very end of the sixth seal. Again, some of these things kind of overlap, but the sixth seal talks about right at the end, they're saying, oh, the great day of his wrath has come. Fall on us rocks so that we don't have to see his face. Well, what does this describe? The seventh seal describes that there's an earthquake at the very end. It also describes peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning. Well, let's look at the seventh trumpet. This is 11... Revelation 11, verse 19. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen with his temple, within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Same things, except for the hail, but same exact language for the seventh trumpet. Look at the seventh bowl. Remember, the bowl judgments are just um, like the final judgments after the mark of the beast has been implemented. But the seventh bowl aligns with the seventh trumpet aligns with the seventh seal. It's all like when Christ returns. So you have trumpets and seals are throughout history. And then right at the very end, you have the seven bowls. But then the seventh bowl aligns with the final trumpet, with the final seal. Everything just finishes at the same time. See how that works? But look at the seventh bowl. And the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on the earth, so great was that earthquake. Now, we have not had that earthquake yet, but the sixth seal, part of the parts that haven't finished yet, where the kings of the earth are crawling under their bunkers and probably all these other things that they've built underground, because there's a whole underground system, if you know anything about that, that are basically begging the rocks to crush them so they don't have to deal with Christ which they still will have to deal with him. But that earthquake hasn't happened yet. And all these things describe a massive shaking of the earth. 
at the very end. What happens at the very end when Christ returns? What did Christ say in Matthew 24, the appearing of the Son of Man, as lightning flashing from the east to the west? Well, what is the seventh bowl, seventh trumpet, seventh seal? What do they all talk about? Lightning flashing from, well, I didn't say from east from the west, but there's peals of thunder, lightning. That's the return of Christ. That's the final deal. Like, that's it. So the seventh bowl aligns with the seventh trumpet, uh, which aligns with the seventh seal. They all align at the same time. However, the previous versions of those things, the sixth seal, the fifth seal, the fifth trumpet, they're at different times through history, and that's why I put that on the um, end times timeline. So what do we take from all this? Well, the six seals are from the believer's perspective and talking about the word of God, the gospel, the message, and it's complementing the prophecy of the seven churches. It's running through history. It basically recapitulates the phases of the church and, and talking about basically, you know, what's, what's happening in the church throughout this time? What's happening to the word of God? The seventh seal matches the seventh trumpet and the seventh bowl. And it's again, all one event, which means that they're happening at the same time. And that is the return of Christ. The trumpets, which we haven't talked about, we'll talk about that next time, are from the unbeliever's perspective. You'll see how that's talking about judgments on these various pagan and antichrist powers throughout history, just like God has judged Babylon with Persia and Persia with Greece and Greece with Rome and Rome with the papacy. I mean, there's always been like one power that comes up that God allows so that it can judge the previous power. And at the end, he judges that final system. That's the whole point of this. So it just goes through these various iterations and then Christ will judge the final iteration. But the bulls are just a final set of judgments. It's after the mark of the beast. They happen in between. This is important to understand. The bulls happen in between the sixth and seventh seals and trumpets. We are in the sixth seal right now. The si- most of the sixth seal has been fulfilled. That was fulfilled like two, three hundred years ago. But there is some part of it that hasn't been fulfilled yet. And right when that part's fulfilled, when the day comes, when the day is about to come and you have this giant earthquake, that's also when the seventh seal, the seventh um, bowl will also happen around, the seventh trumpet, I should say, will happen around that time as well. It's all the same event. So we are within the sixth seal. We haven't gotten to the bowl judgments yet because the mark of the beast hasn't arrived. When the mark of the beast arrives, there will be bowl judgments. Bowl one, bowl two, bowl three, bowl four, bowl, bowl five, bowl six. By the time bowl seven comes, then you've got the seventh seal, the seventh trumpet, all of those ring at the same time, seven, 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 boom, and Christ returns, if that makes sense. Again, this kind of tricky, but you can look on the end times timeline. It's all visually laid out for you. But the the point is this. Revelation is recapitulating. Recapitulation is a common literary device used during that time and used during scripture. Don't be fooled by futurist interpretations trying to tell you all the four horsemen of the apocalypse or all these different things, you know, that are happening. It's the seventh, you know, it's going to be the third trumpet. It's going to be in next year. It's like the third trumpet's already been gone through, man. Look at history. Of course, we didn't talk about the trumpets today. We'll talk about the next time. But the point is, you're going to miss the point. (laughs) The papacy corrupted the church Satan set up his counterfeit kingdom 
this counterfeit system that's physical and fleshly that has put itself between you and God so you can offer him worship and combined with the other things we looked at with Mystery Babylon and the first beast from the sea, it's very clear who the Antichrist power on the earth is, if you know your history. So you should know that because what's happening at the end? Well, Mystery Babylon is happening at the end where the kings of the earth give their power to this church-state union and it demands worship or else it will persecute the saints. She's drunk with the blood of the saints. And certainly she is. And so the question is, are we there yet? No, we're not there yet. So we're in between things. We're we're close. We're close. And again, I'm not setting any times, but we are in that final generation for sure. I believe that. And I believe I stand on solid ground when I say that. But look, here's the good news. The seven seal represents that the will is fulfilled. Remember that this is all about the seals represent the inheritance, the will being undone and Christ coming back to claim the inheritance and claim the earth. So this is actually something super exciting to understand that you are in the final seal, man. You're in the final seal. You're at the end of the sixth seal. I don't know how many more years we got, but the the first, the most of the, the sixth seal was fulfilled, as you could clearly see in history. Now it's fulfilled a while ago. So we're at the end. When the seventh seal hits and Christ returns, the will is done, it's fulfilled, it's been opened, and it's time to live forever and eternity with him. So this is really something to look forward to. I know there's a lot of scary stuff going on, but again, if you understand to look at these things through history, it's an exciting conclusion because we're at the end. We're at the end and we know what to expect. I mean, obviously we don't know everything, all the details, but We've been given enough detail so that we know where we are in history. We can triangulate our position and we know what to expect. And that is that the Antichrist power will come back and demand worship. And I've talked about that. If this is a new thing to you and you don't believe this or you think it's, you know, sometime in the future or you think it's Israel or whatever, go back to those episodes and check them out. I I highly encourage you and I beg you to go and check those out because dispensationalism has fooled so many people into the wrong expectations for the end times on purpose. And if the Antichrist power coordinates some false Christ, golden millennial kingdom, which is very likely, a lot of people will be fooled and they will take whatever mark it's going to have to worship. So I hope you're not fooled. I hope this has edified you and I hope it also has shown you where you are in history so that you can be excited. Be excited. We don't have that much more to go. This is the final generation. Get close to Christ. Spread the gospel. Be a stand for the truth. Try to detach from the world as much as you can. And place your mind and your heart on heavenly things. I hope it's been good for you. I hope you've learned a lot. I hope you will check out those previous episodes if you haven't. And until next time, God bless and we'll see you soon.